All right, if you will, be finding Job chapter 42. This will be our last look at the book of Job. As far as our study of the book of Job has gone, I've enjoyed it. And um, especially across the middle chapters of the book of Job when the speeches of his friends and Job's speeches as well were repetitive at times. You've been very patient. Sometimes when some of those speeches would cover two chapters, uh, we would um, divide one of the two chapters and then outline the next chapter for you, then read through it, closing the Wednesday service. And I wanted us to read together, at least read together the entire book, and we've done that now. We're going to go back tonight and read the entire of chapter number 42. And really, you know, we, we probably ought to take about three or four weeks with verses 7 through 17 but we're going to try uh, to give you what's going on in these verses tonight before we get out of here. And um, so let's read all of Job 42. We're going to review the book very briefly. We're going to pass through it quickly and bring us to verses 7 to 17. I think I already know, as a matter of fact, I told you about a year ago where I felt like we'd be going next. And that hasn't changed in my heart nor my mind. And We'll head to the New Testament the Lord willing, in a few weeks when we get these meetings behind us. Job 42, 1 through 17. The Bible says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me which I knew not. He said, I spoke too soon, Lord. Verse number four, hear, I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, and now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee. And against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. Now none of us want God to do that, right? None of us want God to deal with us after our folly. You say, I don't have any. You do too. We all do. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. He said, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing which was right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. 
For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. He had also seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Hupuk. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. I'm interested tonight in Job's after this. Verse 16, first two words, after this. And I told you about my friend who often we would speak of trials and he would always say, he'd always say, uh, a lot of times we were the last two to leave a Wednesday service. He would always say, talking about trials, Brother Kevin, I'm glad there's an after this. And I am too, and so it is with Job, and I'm happy for him. If you've ever seen anyone suffer and hurt greatly, whether it be with uh, an accident, a surgery, some physical calamity, uh, financial crisis, if you've ever, ever seen anybody suffer and suffer greatly, you're happy too when the season begins to change in their lives. Nobody wants to see another suffer. Um, we've been the journey with Job now for some time. You remember in chapters 1 and 2, we were able to be a fly on the wall and listen to a conversation in heaven between God and Satan concerning and regarding Job. Uh, by the way, let me say this. Um, I am convinced after going through the book of Job that he's the penman. So we do know he learned at some point in his life if he is the penman. I'm convinced he is the penman. Uh, so that being the case, if that be the case, and I'm convinced it is, God did let him know why he went through what he went through. And you say, why did he go through what he went through? Why did God allow all these things in his life? God got glory. And God's people to this day are receiving help. How many times have we turned to somebody that's suffering greatly and ask them to consider Job. And what Job went through, none of us have gone through what Job has gone through. I say what I've said on different occasions. I believe the Old Testament book of Job compares to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. Paul is our, outside of Christ, our great suffering servant in the New Testament. And we don't have time to mention any more about that. We heard the four messengers as they were winded. In chapter number one, they came to Job to report it. It's all gone. Job, it's all gone. The livestock's gone. You boys and girls, they're gone. It's all gone, Job. It's all gone. In uh, chapter number one, verse number 20, you remember what Satan told God? He said, let me add him. Touch his life. Disrupt him. You're petting him. That's the only reason why he's serving you. Let me add him, and I'll cause him to curse you to his face. After he learns it's all gone. Verses 20 through 22 of the first chapter says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle, shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job worshipped when there was nothing. There's nothing left. Job worshipped. We know he's real. We know his faith is real. In chapter number two, there was a second meeting between God and Satan. 
Satan made further insinuation against God and against Job, made accusation against God and against Job. And then we read in chapter number 2, verses 7 and 8, regarding, uh, Mrs., uh, regarding his situation. Um, the Bible says in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, leaving that meeting in heaven, the Bible says, so went Satan forth. In other words, ideas immediately after the meeting, so went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot into his crown. And, the, and he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all and sat down among the ashes. It's a pitiful sight. It's a pitiful, pitiful sight. And, uh, but even in both of the sets of trials, you remember Satan, he, is, he had his boundaries marked off. God said, you can but you can't go any further than that line I mark. And he was not allowed to. So when Satan uh, begins to attack you and your family, your home, your life, whatever it is, just remember he can go no farther than God will allow him to go. He can't touch you any more than God allows. And there'll be a purpose attached to whatever you go through with. That ought to make us rest at night. Job's wife, she lost 10 children, lost everything too, remember? And it appears Job's dying as well. She's buried seven sons, three daughters. Looks like her, her husband's about to die. This is what she said. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Listen to how Job calls her back to a good place. But he said unto her, Job 2.10, Thou speakest... As one of the foolish women speaketh, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this uh, did not Job sin with his lips. So he says, you, you speak like one of the foolish women. You speak like the heathen talk. You, you can't get bitter at God. We've had all these good years. We, we've reaped blessings. You, you, can't, you can't approach... You, uh, you know better than this. And you speak as one of the foolish women, as somebody that don't know God. He calls her to a better place, though he himself is suffering. And then enter Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, in chapter number 2, 11 to 13, and we commended them. And they are to be commended. They came to sympathize, and they did that. Um, but they stayed too long, started preaching to him, and they shouldn't have done that. In Job 3, we got a glimpse of Job at some of his lowest moments. I've gone back over this because I've shared this with so many one-on-one -on -one over this past year. Some of his lowest moments in all the book of Job. You remember in the first 10 verses, he cursed the day of his birth. The next three verses, he questioned his very existence. The following five verses, 14 to 19, he felt like death would be the answer to or the solution to his problems. And then in verse 20 through 26 and a couple of other verses right in the middle of the chapter, he asked a question that only God could answer, and that is why. In chapter 4 through chapter number 31, you remember Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite began their assaults of Job. All of their accusations was built on assumption and tradition and experience. They just assumed Job had gross sin in his life. Every time they would speak, Job would offer a rebuttal and argue with him, and he was 
He was self-righteous sometimes. And I'll say, because this is our last night in Job, Job's three friends, those three friends, didn't get everything wrong. Now, the spirit was all fouled up. They didn't get everything wrong. And what they stated, their application of it was wrong. And Job didn't get everything right, neither will you, in every crisis of life. I've heard criticisms of people in crisis. And I try to caution people. You wait till you go through the crisis before uh, you feel qualified to criticize another going through one. None of us are qualified. We don't live out, flesh out what our neighbor is living. And, uh, but Job defended himself over and again. Then you remember in Job 32 through Job 37, a young man was on the scene we were unaware of. His name is Elihu. I love Elihu. He proved to be a true friend to Job because he pointed Job to God in those chapters. He, he told Job over and again, Job, you said, and I'm going to give you your words back to you, Job, then I want you to think about something, Job. And very practically, he told Job that God is gracious and speaks to his people. And in saying that, he was saying, Job, now God has a word for you. You may not hear it, but God has a word for you. I'm glad God has a word for me. He said to Job, he said, God does, and God will do right. He's not lost sight of you, Job. He said, Job, God does care for his children. He cares for you, Job. And then God is all-powerful. He's not lost control, Job. And so Job, whereas he spoke, every time when Elihu spoke, and every time when Bildad had something to say to him, and every time when Zophar had something to say, Job didn't say anything. His friend pointed him to God. This young man pointed him to God. He's silent. Now God's going to enter the scene, begin speaking. In chapters 38 through 41, it consists of the greatest uh, or the longest speech of God in the Bible. He spoke to Job about his creation and how that he sustains it all. He spoke to Job about his creatures that he's created, how he designed them all uniquely and provides for them. And then you talk to him about behemoth and Leviathan. He said, not a man living can control either one of them, but I have them under my thumb. I made them, I designed them, and I control them, Job. And so now we come to where we are now. Job has repented, right? Look at verse 6. He said, wherefore I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Repent in dust and ashes. We covered verses 1 to 6 last week where he repented. He said he spoke too soon. He wouldn't do that again. He couldn't answer any of God's questions about his creation or his creatures and so he backs off, and now here he is in dust and ashes repenting. Uh, Job is here bowed low. He's bowed low. I read the, I read the story uh, a few weeks back, uh, getting ready actually for uh, last week's text of two brothers that grew up on the family farm, rather large farm. One chose to remain behind and farm the family farm all of his days, and the other one was... Uh, was good with the books, and so he went off to law school and became a lawyer, a very noted attorney in the state capitol. He came back to visit the family and the farm and asked his brother, the farmer, this was his words, why don't you go out and uh, make a name for yourself? 
Why don't you become somebody this world can look up to and hold your head up high? His brother asked him to look out across the wheat field and said, Look out into the wheat field, the heads of the wheat that are most mature and well filled, then low toward the ground, only the heads stand up tall. Job is bent low. Though he has suffered, he's spoken out of turn at times. And he's repenting now of that. You notice with me not only Job's response to God's speech, but consider with me, if you will, verses 7 through 9, God's rebuke of Job's three friends, those three friends being Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It's worth noting God did not rebuke Elihu. Job after, uh, offered no rebuttal to Elihu, and God did not rebuke the young man. The rebuke of the three friends and the instructions given in verses 7 and 8. First of all, you notice in verse number 7 with me, God's great displeasure with and instructions for these three friends. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Verse number 7, first of all, the Bible says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to to Eliphaz the Temanite, You wondered if anybody would ever give them what's for. God's given them, confronting them here. Nothing escapes the all-seeing eye of God, the suffering of Job, nor whenever these... These friends of his were speaking out of turn and misrepresenting God. God saw it all. He's dealt with Job. Now he's going to deal with these three friends. Verse 7, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for you have not spoken of thee the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. There's anything that ought to irk a child of God ought to be when somebody takes a verse or two over here and over yon and take it out of Scripture and try to beat somebody over the head with it. Most time, people know very little, if anything, about the Bible as a whole or the Bible in its context when they're doing people like that. They have a control issue. Or they want to be heard or, or seen. Not only did Job not know all, Job thought he knew. Eliphaz didn't know all. He thought he knew. God's going to humble him too. Bildad didn't know all. Bildad thought he knew. Nor with Zophar. You remember the other two spoke three times apiece. Zophar only twice. And the night we introduced that, I made the statement that, and I still stand by it. I'm glad Zophar didn't speak but two times. He's the most harsh of the three. Critical and hard. No compassion. They, these three, they had reduced God to a box. They thought they understood God. Their, their, their thinking, their understanding was very limited. What they thought they knew. They tried to push it on to Job. I want to say something. You cannot predict the movements of God. I don't care who you are, how long you've been saved How many times you read your Bible through? You cannot always predict what God's going to do. As a matter of fact, let's humble us all tonight. God's blessing some people we don't even agree with tonight. And he doesn't owe us anything. Isn't it amazing? We think God's supposed to be mad at who we're mad at. 
We think God's supposed to be impatient with those that we are impatient with, and yet he's patient with us all. You can't predict God. I hear people all the time talking about revival. If you'll do one, two, three, four, and five, God will send revival. And people will do one, two, three, four, and five and find six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, and God still don't send revival. What are you going to do with that? As a matter of fact, I want to tell us all something. I said this to our men that opened us up and opened assembly Sunday after church back here. And they don't have a problem with this, but I, I see this. Did you know you cannot pressure somebody into genuine repentance, whether that be a lost woman, a lost man, or a lost son? You can't pressure somebody into getting right with God. You can't pressure a saved person that's out of step with God into getting right with God. But you keep giving them the word. You keep praying for them, the Holy Spirit to keep working, and perhaps they will get right with God. God don't jump when we snap our fingers. And neither do people. Be careful how you represent God. They had accused Job of great and gross sin in his life when it just didn't, it just wasn't there. You remember we we rehearsed that over and again and over and again, but it just wasn't there. It didn't exist. They felt like, well, what did Job do? He's suffering greatly. He had to sin greatly, right? What did Job do to deserve all this? He didn't do anything. Matter of fact, it wasn't what he did wrong. It was what he did right. Got him in trouble with Satan. That's why Satan called him a hypocrite. Said he's only doing that because of the hedge you got built about him. You're blessing him. Uh, you're, uh, you're buying him off. You're paying him off. But he was wrong. God's great displeasure with those three men, but notice this. This is our God tonight. Look at verse number 9. There's God's great mercy extended to the three. Before we throw them under the bus too far and ride over them and back up and do it again, look at what the Bible says in verse 9. What a God we serve tonight. Look at verse number 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad, or, or let's go back and look at verse number 8 and then into verse number 9. Verse number, verse number 8. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks. He's still talking to Eliphaz. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have uh, not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant uh, Job. First thing he says is, I know what you've done wrong. I'm going to point that out to you. God is well able to point out your sin tonight and my sin tonight. And isn't it amazing? You can sit in a service and, and, the, and, and the preacher preach toward the lost. And if you're sitting here saved and there's something that you've been tempted with, God can pinpoint that in your life and still speak to you. And he can speak to a five-year-old, and he can speak to a 50-year-old, and he can speak to a 90-year-old all at the same time. We can all pray around the altar. He can hear 20, 25 people, 40, 45 people, 60, 65 people. On his, whatever it is, he can hear every one of us at the same time. The sales service is amazing, isn't it? One man waiting on his daughter at Ole Miss said the 
classes let out. And he said, I don't know how many students come out of there. He said, nearly every one of them were on their phone. And that sales service, able to handle every one of those calls distinctly. No interruptions. What do you think about the prayer service that God offers to us? He hears you and he hears me. He hears Wilson, Sarah Paul as he prays for the people he lives among and that he's labeled among the untouchables of India. A great sacrifice is required. Watch what he says in verse number 8. He said, I'm going to require great sacrifice. He said, seven bullocks and seven rams. Not a bullock and a ram, not a bullock, not a ram. Seven bullocks, seven rams. A great sacrifice. Reminds us of the cost that it took for us to find forgiveness. Great sacrifice by our Lord. Moving on in verse number 8. Job is going to play the, he's going to play the part of priest for the three. They've offended him. And in order for him to play the part of priest on their behalf, as they offer their sacrifice, represent them before God in their giving of their sacrifice and admitting of the wrong, Job either has forgiven them or he has to forgive them. Isn't that amazing? Job's going to serve them. He's got to forgive them. And so he does forgive them. Don't you listen to me. This is going to get in your shoe leather. Forgiveness is the Christian mandate. Always. But you don't know what she said. I don't care what she said. You don't know what he did. I don't care what he did. Forgiveness is the Christian mandate. And if you can't be right with your brother and your sister in Christ, you cannot be right with God. Let me say that again. If you are not right with your brother and sister in Christ, you are not right with God. Forgiveness is the Christian mandate. Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. He said, pray like this. A little ways down after a few lines, he said, forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Forgive us of our sins. We forgive our debtors of their sin. And certainly we do. To forgive is to go on as though it never happened. To forgive means to let it go. To forgive means you don't hold a record. Two old boys working. One of them said to the other, said, every time my wife and I get into it, said, she gets historical on me. He said, you mean hysterical? She said, no. He said, no, she gets historical on me. Said she keeps bringing it all back up, throwing it in my face. I've heard this often through the years. Somebody will make the statement that uh, I can't forgive. Truth of the matter is, you won't forgive. There's a big difference, a great gulf between the two in saying I cannot forgive versus I will not forgive. You can forgive. If you've been forgiven, you can forgive. God never told us anything that without his help we cannot do. With his help we can do. So this business of uh, forgiveness. Let me ask you something. Have you been forgiven? Have you? Have you been forgiven of God? Let me ask you this. What have you been forgiven of? 
Somehow we have the idea because we don't need a great measure of forgiveness in our lives. It gives us the right to hold a grudge when there was a time in our lives that the account was great against us. God forgave us. He let it go. I won't stand for that. Christ has paid the sin debt. It's been charged off to his account. Notice the response of Job's three friends to God's instructions to them. He told them what to do. He said, you're guilty. Verse number 9, so Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. Now, in order for Job to play the part of priest for these three men, he had to forgive them. And in order for these three men to get right and do what God required them to do, they had to admit their guilt. They had to confess their sins and their wrong. They had to do that. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that remarkable? It means they had to swallow their pride. It's hard for me to say I'm wrong. It's hard for me to do it. I'll tell you a little something else. Matter of fact, it's a little secret we keep. It's hard for you to admit you're wrong too. We're living in a society of thumb-sucking people. They have bought into Freudian psychology and feel like because mama didn't change their diaper early enough one Saturday morning she decided to sleep in, they had a warped view in a particular area of their life. If I've chosen to sin, I did it with my eyes wide open. As a matter of fact, I've got something built on the inside of me called my conscience that warned me the whole time I was going into sin. I knew better. I knew better. I knew better. Even a man that commits a heinous crime of murder when he goes to the court of law, he don't want to admit it. He knows it's wrong. They can have evidence. He knows it's wrong. He's trying to cover it up. He knows it's wrong. They had to swallow their pride But when they did and admitted their wrong, confessed their sin, God wiped the slate clean. (sighs) What's peace worth to to you tonight? Lastly, 10 to 17. We've only got a few minutes to deal with it, but I do want to point out these verses. Verses 10 to 17, Job's restoration granted of God. Job's restoration. There's a new beginning for him here that's going to last for 140 years. God's going to give him another 140 years of life. And I want to say one more time, I'm happy for him. I'm happy for him. There's the turning of Job's captivity in verse number 10. Notice the turning itself where the Bible says in verse 10, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job. Notice the timing of it. The Bible says, and the Lord turned the captivity of Job, W-H-E-N. When, precisely when, he prayed for his friends. Oftentimes I'm asked, what do you think ought to do? They said it. What do you think? And here's been, and I've, I've, I had a conversation with a younger preacher, a younger brother, good brother sometime recently that his family's been attacked. He feels like he's been treated unfairly. And he said, where do you think I ought to start? I said, you ought to start where Job wound up. You ought to pray for them. What if I can't pray for them? You pray for them till you can pray for them. You pray for them. Pray for them. They've wounded me. Pray for them. Pray for them. God opened the floodgate of blessing into Job's life when he prayed for his friends. 
the total of Job's restoration there in verse number 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Watch this. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. We often speak about life and hardship. We talk about one step forward, two steps back. Job took two steps back and four steps forward. Four steps forward. There's the gathering around Job, verse number 11. In verse number 11, you'll find the gathering of Job's family and acquaintances and also their gifts for Job. Look at verse 11. And uh, Then there came unto him all of his brethren and all his sisters. We don't know where they've been. Perhaps there was a tradition. We're all filled with our sacred cows and our superstitions, even in the Baptist church. I could spill some of them out for you. It wouldn't help you. It wouldn't help me to say it. Aggravate me to tell it, as a matter of fact. Just because somebody said something don't make it so. Things don't always happen in threes. Every tub don't sit on its own bottom. Bunch of hogwash out there. Bunch of hogwash out there. We don't know where the family and the friends were, but it may be that they felt like, wait a minute, now lightning has struck at Job's place. We better not get close. It could strike us. Don't know. But there were a lot of traditions believed to be back in those days. Then came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters, and all they that had been of his acquaintance before, and did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him. That means they consoled him and comforted him over all the evil, that is, all the calamity that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, and everyone an earring of gold. We don't have time to deal with the verse. It means what it says. It says what it means. It's what happened. Look, if you will, at verse number 12 with me, 12 to 15. You'll see the adding to of Job's estate. God's going to bless him and bless him greatly. Um, verse number 12 begins, verse number 12, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. Some say, well, the, the, the best is always saved for last, not always. If you read the latter part of the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, Everybody don't have a happy ending according to this world. Everybody don't. Everybody don't find their pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. Everybody don't leave this walk of life on a high note. Everybody don't finish their years out with great substance. Prosperity of Job. He gives his livestock back to him twofold. Watch this, twice as much. Verse number 12, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. Now, this is the latter end he's listing here. For he had 14,000 sheep. You'll read chapter 1. He had 7,000 before he lost them all. And 6,000 camels. Chapter number 1, in the beginning he had 3. Then he got down to none. God here gives him 6,000. And 1,000 yoke of oxen. He had 500 yoke of oxen in chapter 1. And 1,000 she-asses. He had 500 of those in chapter number 1. God has blessed him. There's the prosperity of Job. There's the posterity of Job. Look at verses 13 to 15. The Lord's adding to Job's family. Look at verse number 13. He had also seven sons and three daughters. You say, preacher, he had twice as many camels, twice as many sheep, twice as many she-asses, twice as many yoke of oxen. Why not twice as many children? Well, there's a difference. There's a difference. When he lost those camel, sheep, oxen, and she-asses that he had listed in chapter number one, they would never appear before Job again. 
But those ten children, they just crossed over is what they did. And they were waiting at the river on the other side. When he got there, he had ten on the other side. He and Miss Job did, waiting for them to cross over on the other side. And God gave him ten more, born out of due time on this side. He had 20 children. God didn't shortchange him. He's no man's debtor. Notice Job's naming of his daughters in verse number 14. This is interesting. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hupuk. Jemima means dove. Keziah means perfume. Karen Hupuk means eye makeup or eye shadow. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? You remember when Job or when Joseph would name his two sons after he came to be second in command only to Pharaoh and all the land of Egypt. You remember he named his two sons and it was emblematic of his experiences and where God had brought him to in life. Jemima meaning dove. Dove is, a, is an emblem of peace. Keziah speaking of purse perfume speaks of a fragrance. Karen Hupik, eye makeup, things look so different for this. Have you ever been around somebody that's been somewhere? Have a sweetness about them. My soul, I've run up on people and met people and know people. I can be crossing my spirit and run up on them. And I'm telling you, the clouds go away. Just being in their presence. But now they've been somewhere. There's one such dear old sainted lady. I love her. I watched her for a few years follow a walker into a church service. I've never heard her complain. If you were to go ask her for $25, she probably don't have it, doesn't have it. But she'll talk to you about how good God's been to her. Notice the acknowledging of Job's daughters here in verse number 15. This is something that was unheard of. Watch this, verse 15. And in all the land, there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. Now, that's their beauty mentioned. Now, regarding men and their appearance and having that of a handsome appearance, very few men is that mentioned about in Scripture. Scripture just don't make much of that. Solomon, Absalom, there were others, but only a few of them. But here, the Spirit of God said, tell everybody, when God restores him and gives him Three daughters, they're beautiful girls, grew up to be beautiful women. Isn't it amazing? The Holy Ghost wanted that in there. Watch this. This is something that's unheard of in the ancient world. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Do you know a woman wasn't? Uh, the, the daughters didn't get an inheritance. But Job's already buried three. And it doesn't matter to him if the world looks down upon his daughters. He doesn't. And he won't. And he displays it here. Notice with me lastly and briefly, Job's legacy, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 begins after this. That's what, we're, that's what we've come to tonight, This after this of Job. Summing it all up in the book of James, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. The patience of Job. God taught him so much. Watch verses 16 and 17. After this, Job lived in 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. God gave him 140 more years of life. You have to make your mind up as to what you believe about how long 
or how old Job was when his trials began to make their way into his life. Some believe, and a lot in tradition teach, that he was 70 years old, and so therefore when you come to this final chapter and God blessed him with twice as much, he gave him twice as much life as he'd already spent. Perhaps that is so. If so, that would put him at 210 years of age when he died. There's Job's generations in verse number 16. Watch, watch this. After this, Job lived in 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. I just, I mulled that over today, sitting at my desk. Four generations. Somehow we think that that means Job had no more trials, faced no more difficulty. There were no more whirlwinds in his part of his world. Let me remind us of where we started the book of Job in chapter 1, verse number 1, only part of it. The Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. It does not say there was a man in the land of Oz whose name was Job. He was a real man, lived in a real world. I wonder how many times over the next 140 years, I wonder how many gravesides he stood at because there were some. I'll help in a Bible conference uh, here in a few weeks, and they're scaling back this year because there was a widow that meets the criteria in 1 Timothy 5, being a widow indeed, and her roof has been leaking for some time. And the pastor and the men of the church got together, and they looked at their funds, considered their Bible conference, and thought they couldn't get everybody in this year, couldn't afford airfare and hotel bills, and but they still want to have their comforts, but they did want to help the dear sister in the church. Being a widow, of course, her husband has died long ago. She had two sons, or two children, both of them. She's buried both of them. She didn't have enough money. She has tithed. She has been faithful. She's cooked for the fellowship meal. She's done her part. She's been on her pew, and they felt like we need and we owe her a new roof and get her in the dry. And God bless that. He'll make a way. I was thinking about Amanda will remember this. It's been several years back now at the Taylorsville Baptist Camp meeting, several years back. Brother Craig Edwards was going to preach. I believe Brother Joe Arthur was going to preach with him. But Brother Craig was going to preach. And there was a bit of a disruption in the service. And here in a little bit, Brother Craig got his wife, Miss Linda, and they got to making their way out to the car, be on the north and west end over toward where the restroom area is on the campground. That's where he was parked. We later found out that night that uh, he had got a call. We saw Miss Linda when she about hit the ground. Brother Craig had leaned over and said, Linda, it's Sawyer. He's gone. He got out of the locked back door and got into the swimming pool. That's where they found him. He said, Linda, Sawyer, it's Sawyer, he's gone. They've lived with that pain all these years. Mark it down, there was more pain. There was more pain in Job's life. We don't know what it would have been. Maybe it's like the widow that buried her husband and then lived so long she buried two children. Her two children. Or maybe like a preacher, one of the most sought after across the southeast in that day. 
did not exempt him from trial, would bury a grandchild, precious boy. To give you this, I'm done. Verse number 17 of Job 42. Uh, verse number 17. I think I said this last week, but I've got to quit. So Job died. Verse 16 said, After this lived Job in 140 years. Saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. Verse 17, so Job died being old and full of days, satisfied. That's what that means, satisfied. Resting in the Lord, trusting the Lord. Job's the book of suffering. Sometimes suffering can be penal. If it is, you'll know it. If God's judging you, you'll know it. I won't have to tell you, you'll know it. Sometimes suffering is remedial. Martin Luther said the greatest book in my library is the book of affliction. For therein God speaks. Suffering may be redemptive. Maybe suffering in your life as a roadblock that will turn you and bring you back to God. But always, always, whatever suffering is for the child of God, it is never, ever, 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 ever without purpose. Let's stand. I hate to leave the book of Job. I really do. I've grown to love it. Look forward to perhaps being able to preach from it this fall at various places. Thank you for being here. Let's dismiss uh, in prayer. And uh, you be careful going home in all this weather. Brother Greg Chapman, would you dismiss us, please?